Father, thank you for the word of God. Give us utterance today. Lord, we're not interested in getting through notes. We're interested in hearing from God. Thank you for your precious presence and utterance today. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus' mighty name. Can you believe with Pastor Tom this morning? Amen. So, uh, the title of today's message is Independence Day and Other Holidays. More than a barbecue, a sale, or a day off. These holidays that come up, they're more than an opportunity for you to barbecue, to find a sale at 40 or 50% off, or to have just time off. So I'm going to take advantage of this 4th of July. It's not 4th, it's the 1st, but this particular Independence Day week as a teachable moment. Let's hear what the Spirit of God has to say. Let's put perspective toward holidays, because our perspective regarding holidays uh, is very significant and it's very revealing in locating our belief systems and the way that you believe is the way that you're going to live and receive let's look a little bit at the word holiday the etymology of it comes from the 1500s and the early version was was holiday but it comes from an old english holy day or consecrated day a religious anniversary or a sabbath so you're going to find that at the root of many of these traditions around the world, and let's just talk about the U.S., is the concept of the Sabbath, which is a day that is holy. And in secular terms, it means you do no work. You don't have to go to work. And you don't have to go to school. Many people take... Uh, the modern version of this and let me read this to you from the Oxford Dictionary a day of festivity or recreation when no work is done now, now I, want you to, I want you to catch this this is a modern definition by the Oxford Dictionary and they use this as an example of what they call a holiday listen carefully December 25th is an official public holiday they used December 25th, or really Christmas, as an example of what they're talking about, where you don't have to go to work, and you don't have to go to school, and you can just have recreation. That's where it stops. Let's look at another modern translation from the Cambridge Dictionary. It's a time when someone does not go to work or school, but is free to do what they want, such as travel or relax. That's their concept of holiday. However, I want to direct your attention. This is so important. I want to direct your attention toward Merriam-Webster's definition and one other, the Collins Dictionary. It says, a day on which one is exempt from work, specifically a day that is marked by a general suspension of work in commemoration, in commemoration of an event. It isn't just free time. Do whatever you want to do. The Sabbath is not just another day that you just get to stay home and you don't have to go to work. You don't have to go to school. The Sabbath is not time off. The Sabbath is a dedicated time where you go to commemorate and honor God. Listen carefully. Let's look at this, the, another uh, uh, 
definition from the Collins English Dictionary. A holiday is a day when people do not go to work or school because, because of a religious or national celebration. You see, it isn't just that you had time off. It's what are you using the time for? I think I have your attention. There's nothing wrong with barbecuing. There's nothing wrong with buying something on sale. But let's get this straight. December 25th is not just a day off and a time to go shopping. It's a day to acknowledge that Jesus Christ, the eternal only begotten Son of God came into the earth. Come on, friends. And hope was birthed that day. Hope for mankind to redeem us from the curse. Hallelujah. So much more than going to Macy's and getting 70% off. Anyway, so when we talk about commemorating an event, what do we mean by commemorate or commemoration? Well, let's turn to Merriam-Webster again, since it appears that Merriam-Webster is on the right track. To commemorate is to call to remembrance, to mark by some ceremony or observance. To observe, to celebrate or solemnize something such as a ceremony or festival. In other words, to hold something sacred. Don't get me started. This, this nation, this generation knows very little about the sacred versus the profane. I did a message about that a while back. It was almost a, exactly a year ago. The profane and the sacred. It's not what you think. But on the other hand, here it says to commemorate something sacred. Now let's, let's, let's see, because we have such a challenge in our particular paradigm in America today, understanding honor in this generation. It is so difficult when people dishonor an office, like the office of the president, and people speak poorly of each other. Did you know that even the angel, when he came down in the book of Jude, he didn't, he didn't bring railing accusation against the devil himself. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, he showed respect for the office. Yeah, it was the office of the devil, but it still was an office. Which might be good for us to take some notes, pray for your government. Because I don't care who is speaking to whom, and who's right, and who's more right, and who's, who's wrong. But the thought is there needs to be respect. We really need respect. So let's move ahead to this. Um, the concept, so, so here's a thought. Because, as a whole, our communities and our nation has been reduced in many instances, I'm saying all the time, but in many instances has been reduced to a sale and a barbecue and a football game and time off to do whatever you want to do. There is very little thought to cost what did it cost? What, what's July 4th all about? It cost something. It's no accident that we are not all speaking German right now. Some of you didn't get that. When Hitler was moving across Europe, 
It was very easy for it to just continue on and we would be today German speaking. Now I have nothing against Germans, the German language. I studied the German language when I was studying art song in college. But the thought here was the spirit behind Hitler was the spirit of the devil. And I just, I, I'm not going to give you a history lesson, but it might behoove us to start paying attention to what these holidays are about. Because if we don't do it, don't expect the media to do it for you. And if you don't help your children understand, don't expect them to get it at school. So here's a couple of excerpts about the Declaration of Independence. And I'm going to be very short on this, so don't start yawning. This is not a history lesson. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I want you to underscore the word created, that they are endowed by their creator, creator, creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So here you have the, the, the purpose for these men signing and coming up with this document of the Declaration of Independence was to accommodate on the face of this planet some place where they can express the fact that they had a creator. I mean, there's a lot of people right now that they're fighting the whole idea of creation and creation. That's a whole other argument. I'm not here to argue with the scientists about that. But I am here to tell you that they started by acknowledging the creator. And that they, there was a, a God-given opportunity to seek out life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The devil does not want life. The devil does not want liberty. And the devil does not want you happy. And then it goes on to say in another paragraph, we therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world. Who do you think that is? It is the creator which they referenced earlier in the document on the opening statement. They are acknowledging that there is a judge. Some people have no clue. They, they think that we're going to get into this in, in just a little bit of, as if God gives me strength. I have, I'm loaded today. Just pray for me that I get, get out what I need to get out. But the key here is that on the, in the closing sentences, it says, And for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of the divine providence. Who is divine providence? That's God. We mutually... Pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Now, I said earlier today that we need to continually remind ourselves of the sacrifices that were paid. Things that we enjoy today, we don't enjoy them because it was an accident. Somebody paid a price. Let's start with the fact that we're all here and breathing. Your mama, and we all had one, 
went through a real difficult time deliver, carrying you around for most of us nine months. And I was there when my boys were born and they, it was a lot of work. Can I dare say it was a sacrifice? And how about after they have the baby, sleepless nights, hello, sleep deprived, your whole life deprived. I mean, your life is no longer your own. Everything is dedicated. I'm not trying to scare those of you that are trying, going to have a baby. Here. But I'm just trying to point to the sacrifice that your mom made and your dad made. And you know when Mother's Day come around, you better call your mom. You better get that card in. You better get them flowers. Because your mom deserves it. Somebody said amen. amen. Sacrifice. Somebody say sacrifice. So look at the sacrifice that these guys did. Five of the signers were captured by the British as traitors and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons serving in the Revolutionary Army. Another had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 signers fought and died from wounds or hardships of the Revolutionary War. They signed and they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. What kind of men were they? Twenty-four were lawyers and and uh, jurists. Eleven were merchants. Nine were farmers and lar of large plantation owners, men of means and well-educated. But they signed, listen, the Declaration of Independence knowing full well that the penalty would be death if and when they were captured. Carter Braxton of Virginia, a wealthy planter and trader, saw his ships went from the sea by the British Navy. He sold his home and properties to pay his debts and died in rags. Thomas McKean was so hounded by the British that he was forced to move his family almost constantly. He served in the Congress without pay and his family was kept in hiding. His possessions were taken from him and poverty was his reward. These are guys that signed on the dotted line for the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To, to make it possible so that you and I could be here today. Come on, friends. Vandals or soldiers looted the properties of Dillery, Hall, Clymer, and Walton, Gwinnett, Hayward, and it's spelled H-E-Y, interesting, Rutledge, and Middleton. At the Battle of Yorktown, Thomas Nelson Jr. noted that the British General Cornwallis had taken over the Nelson home for his headquarters. And he quietly urged George Washington to open fire. That was on his own home. And the home was destroyed and Nelson died bankrupt. I'm just, it got, got really quiet in here. What I'm trying to say is, it wasn't free. Somebody had to say the word sacrifice. I'm going to skip because I see it got a little quiet in here. But that's what we're talking about. That's why it's not just about shopping and having a hot dog and doing a barbecue. Right. There's a lot that went into this. There were a lot of plans for the U.S. of A. God had this. in United States of America was in the heart of God well before hot dogs and Macy's was here and Costco. Come on, somebody. And the 49ers and the Raiders and the Giants and the... So I'm thinking about our spiritual freedom. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 talks about how we were purchased with the precious blood of Jesus. But I want to, I gosh, I don't know if I have time for this. There are, there are popular doctrines and they're doctrines of devils 
like existentialism, humanism, relativism that have polluted our educational institutions, our airways, our literature, our art form, our families, our government, and our churches even. And if I had time to get into that, I would. And I have a whole section on what all that means. But basically, if I could boil them all down to this uh, in a layman's term, what you see is the voice of this generation, the voice of existentialism, all these things say that I am all that matters. There is no such thing as absolute truth. And by the way, there's no God. I determine my own morality. I set my own values and standards. Whatever and whoever came before me is irrelevant. I could care less. That's why a lot of kids are leaving their parents and grandparents and just abandon them like, what? It's like, like a lack of understanding of the sacrifices that went in. Somebody said, hello, amen. But God's doing a work, bringing the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the children back to the fathers. Somebody said hallelujah for that. It says, the only thing that matters is me right now. By the way, I owe nothing to any, anyone, no debt or gratitude. That almost sounds like, wow, no, no effort to recall and show respect for anything, for anything that... Any sacrifice that was, that was said. But I want to, I want to point your attention real quick to, to something that we have very clearly in the Bible where we commemorate on a regular basis, where we hold an observance and there's somewhat of a ceremony and we honor something. Here's a little test for you. What is it that we do almost monthly at the church? To cut, thank you, to put something in remembrance. It says in Luke 22, 18 through 20, for I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup and saying, This is the cup of the new covenant, my blood, which is shed for you. In the book of 1 Corinthians, it says, As oft as you drink of it. So, this is something that we're supposed to drink of on a regular basis. What you must sol solemnly realize is that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you reenact in your words and actions the death and resurrection of the Master. You will be drawn back to this meal again and again until the Master returns. You must never let, it f let familiarity breed contempt. We need to be reminded of the value of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And it represents your liberty because you overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. And it's that blood that ratified the covenant. Now let's see where I can go with this because I have to pace myself a little bit. Um, let's, let's look at this. The, the reason... For holidays or memorials is to help human beings remember. And human beings, we're so good at forgetting. No, let me put it this way. We're so good at forgetting what we're supposed to forget, for, supposed to remember, and so bad at remembering what we're supposed to forget. Some people hold grudges for years. They should let that go and they should hang on to the blood of Jesus. Come on, somebody. I, I butchered that. I'm going to try. How many of you let me try that one more time? As human beings, we seem, human nature seems to be so good at remembering what we should forget 
but letting slip and forgetting what we absolutely should remember. There, I think I, I think I got that one. So notice, notice what God God used different methods to remind us people. For instance, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, 40 through 44, Leviticus 23, it's, it talks about, it's, it's when Joshua was crossing the river and, 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 uh, the Jordan River. And then he goes on to say how that you're going to take, uh, you're going to cross over this and you're going to take stones, right? And you're going to carry 12 stones, which represent, it represents the 12 tribes. And look at it says in verse 43, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths. When I, uh, when, you know what? I, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself too much. In this case, I'm already into booths. Joshua 4, forgive me up there. Forgive me for that confusion. So he says, crossover, we're in Joshua 4, 5 through 7. Crossover before the ark of the Lord, pick up these stones. And I want to pick it up like in verse 7. Then you shall, when your children ask you, then you shall answer them with the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. And so what we're saying, what he's trying to say in verse 6 is that this is supposed to be a sign for you when your children ask. When your children ask in a time to come. That was verse 6. That's what we really want. It's verse 6. You see, friends, we need to take responsibility for our own family. You can't just relegate it to the school to say, this is what this means. You can't do that. You need to, you be the one. You be, if you're the head of the household, you take the responsibility and explain to your kids, this is what Christmas means. This is what Sabbath means. This is what Memorial Day means. Are you listening to me? This is what the day of Pentecost or the feast of Pentecost means. This is what it means. And you have to work at it. So forgive me, I just, I just got a little ahead of myself. But in Joshua 4 and verse 6, it says, When your kids ask you, you are to tell them this. Now let's go back to the thing about the booze. This was really interesting. Camping. God used camping to remind the children of Israel about when they were delivered out of Israel. And this was really very interesting. It comes from one of the feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles, which you might say it's, it's the Feast of Camping, the Feast of Tents. And the whole family for seven days are supposed to move out. And I'm not a historian, neither am I a Jewish, you know, literary genius, but I'll just tell you like in layman's terms, they would go out... And they would live, they would leave wherever they were, and they would live in a tent. And when the kids would ask, Mommy, Daddy, why are we camping today? Why are we camping? They were supposed to rehearse the story about how God delivered them out of Egypt from one of the most foremost, formidable forces on the face of the planet. God, with a strong arm, delivered them. He put the hurt on the most vicious, the most feared army on the face of the planet in that day. I don't know if that does something for you like it does me. That should build confidence in the children. Because God, if God did it then, then God will do it. Come on, He'll do it again. Somebody help me out. So God uses some points of, of remembrance. So is it possible? Is it possible for one generation to pass 
the revelations and the meaning to another generation. I believe, first of all, I believe that's God's plan. Is it, is it done in the natural? I don't think so. I think it needs to happen supernaturally. If you're a mom, a dad, or you have influence on grandchildren or whatever, believe God for an anointing to be able to transmit this. See, even with the booths, even with all the feasts, there were seven feasts altogether. And even yearly, they would do all these different feasts. Even then, the Jews forgot. They forgot the meaning. And I want to I bring a little analysis to you of what happened. And I have to kind of go through this. I need to go through this in kind of a, a paraphrased fashion because I don't have, we don't have all day. Somebody said amen. amen. But there was more than once an entire generation of Jews, Israelites, that completely didn't know anything about God. Like after, I mean, we're starting with, with Moses and the, and the Sinai and the fire and, and the smoke and, and the Ten Commandments and then Korah, the earth opened up like, whoa, dude, this is a real living God, right? I said, right? And then they see, they trample things. Then you have Joshua and, 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 and Caleb. And they have these amazing things that happen as they cross the river and take land. And that, but even as years pass, parents let things slip. And generations got to a place where they didn't know. They just didn't know what these things mean. And I'm going to point something out in a very familiar portion of Scripture. Nehemiah chapter 1. Are you ready? Come on. Take a deep breath. Oh, come on. Shake it out a little bit. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Notice this. Nehemiah. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in the front of the water gate. This is Nehemiah 8, 1 through 12. And in front of the water gate and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book you know what I'm talking about somebody say the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had commanded Israel so Ezra and get the picture use your imagination let God talk to you Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of the men and women and all who could hear and understand on the first day of the seventh month and verse 3, he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. You getting this picture? Hours he's out there and the people, listen to this, before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all, the people were attentive. They weren't falling asleep on Pastor Mark on Sunday morning. I'm sorry, did I really say that? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. All from morning till midday. Listen carefully. So Ezra the scribe stood on the platform of wood, which they made for the purpose. And beside him at his right hand, there's a whole slew of other priests that I'll explain their role and a significance that I saw in a moment. But let's go to verse 5. And Ezra... Opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And listen to this. When he opened it, these people hadn't seen the open book in generations. When he opened the book, what happened? All the people stood up. 
And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And then all the people answered, Amen, Amen. While lifting up their what? And they bowed their head and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This was a rare occurrence for Israel. Now, I want you to catch something. Notice this. And Nehemiah was the governor of Ezra, the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Why? Listen! For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Why do you think they wept? Because they never heard this. They never heard that they're the head and not the tail. They never heard that God is their redeemer, that they could win in life. Hello! All they have known all their life was hardship and plunder. They didn't realize that they had a covenant with the living God. And life was really hard for them. And when they realized that they had traveled such a difficult road and that they had fallen so far away from who they could and should be and all the benefits and all the responsibilities that God would have conferred upon them but by their own lack of understanding and their own neglect it's like they didn't know so who wouldn't weep you know when you when your life has been plundered and then you realize that there's a problem how many of you say somebody say it's too good to be true I would say they were probably in emotional shock. They never heard something so good before. Are you listening to me? So the people were weeping. I believe one translation says they were sobbing. Please, you've got to get the picture. When the meaning finally came, the meaning of what was being said, it connected with the people. When you come to church, you should get the meaning. And I want to bring something out about all these other priests that stood by. It wasn't just Edra. Because what it says in, in other translations, other parts of the scripture, is that it's almost, I see in my mind's eye, that they moved through the crowd explaining what these things meant. I see children's workers. I see youth workers moving out, different teachers Touching the lives and explaining, this is what it means, honey. This is what it means. This is who you are in Christ. This is what Jesus means. This is what being forgiven is like. This is what being valuable is like. I see that happening in church today. So Ezra, to me, is like pastors when they are preaching. And the other ones are like the other ones moving through the camp, helping the people understand. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. Do you see the picture? Do you see the correlation? Oh, Jesus. But the, the, the spirit of this world... See, without redemptive revelation, my people perish. The devil is trying everything he could do to stop redemptive revelation. We just saw a whole generation of people standing from morning until midday. I don't know what midday. What if it's two or three in the afternoon? And they're weeping and they're sobbing. When they realized what they could have had and how far they had fallen, how they had sinned against God. And then, of course, they were encouraged, weep not, neither mourn, because you've taken the right step today. Today is a holy day unto the Lord. Go, eat the fat, drink the sweet before the Lord, because today 
He's turning it around for you. Hallelujah. That's the message of the gospel. But listen, the spirit of this world is a thief. And it's trying to steal these truths from us. Trying to steal. These are deep. I'm glad I had a moment to get to this. Demon-inspired doctrines that assault God and the Bible. Let's talk about humanism in simple terms. My goodness, we could, you could probably talk for, for months on humanism, then existentialism, and then... You know, nihilism and all these different things. But let's just take in simple terms. The definition of humanism is a belief that human needs and values are more important than religious beliefs. Or the needs and the desires of humans. As an example of humanism is the belief that a person creates their own ethics. Now there's a lot of humanism floating around. And people doing a, trying to do a lot of good works, but not in the name of Jesus. Oh, I know that they give to the poor, and they're out donating all kinds of money, but they're doing they're they're adopting orphans and all this wonderful stuff. But that you know what that sounds like to me? Why call you me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things I say? You did not acknowledge me as Lord. So humanism, but of a, a point, I want to underscore this. They, people, these, these persons are of the persuasion that they create their own set of ethics. Listen carefully. Existentialism. What is it in simple terms? One of the earliest existential ideas to come about was the concept of subjective morality. So there are different people's names that I really don't want to mention in church because I shouldn't mention them near. But I, I got to tell you, when I went to college, way back when, <laughs> I had a crisis moment because my English professor, God bless him, he's supposed to be a believer, had us reading these doctrines of demons. And basically, what these theories say or agree upon is that it rejects the long-held belief in universal truth of right and wrong. According to the philosophers, personal experience, personal conviction, and the specific context of a situation are the only things that can define morality. Consequently, the definition of morality has to be left to each individual. If that doesn't give you a headache, figuratively speaking, these are huge shifts in thought. And we have generations now, or I I should say decades, of students and both in the elementary in the junior high, in the high school, and at the collegiate level, and at the PhD and the doctorate level, that they're being, this is being pushed on them. That there's no such thing as right and wrong. It's subjective to whatever you want. You make your own thing. Morality is entirely subjective. With no outside source to guide, people must determine right from wrong based on personal experience, logic, or their own convictions. But this one really underscores it. Relativism. The doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to, in relation to culture, society, or historical context. And there are no absolutes. There are no absolutes. Now, let me tell you something. 
that is a good way to get depressed. Because I like absolutes. I like the fact that God is good. I like that. I like the fact that Jesus said, you shall know the truth. And that truth is going to set you free. Well, what, what's the truth? I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the light. There is no debating about it. I don't care what your paper says. I don't care how many PhDs you have behind your name. Jesus said, I am the truth. He said to Peter, who do you say that I am? Some say that you're Elias. Some say this and that. Peter chirps up. You are Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. See, a lot of these people, God, he's just a figment of your imagination. It's a crutch. You know, you know what you need is you need to get over it and start making decisions for your life. But he said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And upon this rock, upon this rock of revelation knowledge, I'm going to build my church. I like this. This is an absolute. And the gates of hell, that's right, I said hell and church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now that means that the gates of hell, if, if Paul Vernosi is a member of the body of Christ, and thank God he is, hallelujah, Didi said amen. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the Vernosi household. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the Albert household. Well, how's it going, Pastor Tom? I'm pretty good. How about yourself? Well, it looks like all hell's broke loose. Well, good thing that the gates of hell will not prevail against you. That, my friend, is an absolute. How about this one? For I know in whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. How about that? And then how about this for some, for some things? I just want to, I, I hope somebody is getting a little bit excited or a little encouraged in the house today. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says this. 55 verses 8 through 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. Somebody say, thank God. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than NBC, ABC, Oxford, Cambridge. Come on, somebody. Stanford, Berkeley. My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. It says in Isaiah 5, let me just throw some scriptures before, I, before we all stand up and shout some victory in the house. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, Isaiah 5, 20 and 21. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. That sounds like the whole existential bunch. Hallelujah. I wish I had time, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to close here. How many of you give me another minute? Let's put some perspective on, we should be a happy people. 
Let's put some perspective on where we're at. First of all, you have dual citizenship. And I'm not talking about, you know, that you're, you're Canadian and American. Uh, uh, dual citizenship. I'm talking about that you are a citizen of heaven. First. And you also are a citizen of the United States, we're presuming here. And look what it says. The kingdom of heaven is the only kingdom that will last forever. I like when pastor says that we're not always going to be doing this. Time cycles and seasons are all in the Father's hand. We'll cover that in a moment. It says, therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom in Hebrews 12, 28, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. How's that for an absolute statement? Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Second absolute I'd like to throw out there for all the existentials is that God is the supreme judge of all the... I don't care what you think. It's what does God say about it? Genesis 18.25 Far be it from you, Abraham says to the Lord, to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right the judge of all the earth look what it says in Acts 17 yeah you better believe it here comes the judge look what it says in Acts 17 31 he has what, what we see right now in our lifetime is so absolutely ridiculous and silly Twitter wars it's ridiculous Hollywood and this and that, slamming the other person in such disrespect and foul language. Come on, friends. It is absolutely ridiculous. But I want to tell you who the judge is. He's, he's judging. Watch this. He has set a day when the entire human race will be judged and everything set right. And he has already appointed the judge, confirming him before everyone by raising him from the dead. I wonder who that is. He's your champion, Jesus Christ. He's the judge. Somebody say, here comes the judge. Notice what it says in Hebrews 9, 27. That is, it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Revelations 20, 11 through 13 says that there's a throne. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. No, this is not a Senate panel hearing or a congressional hearing. This is not Trey Gowdy. It, it, it isn't any of the names you see on TV. When you're in church, it's not as seen on TV. It's as seen on scripture. Stop living your life as seen on TV. Forget TV. <laughs> forget TV then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them and I saw the dead small and great standing before God and the books were open you better believe there's some record and there's not going to be no redacting this and that and hiding this and hiding that and everything unless you got the blood of Jesus you're in trouble I said unless you got the blood of Jesus you are in some serious trouble Hallelujah. 
Thank you. <laughs> and it says, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were open, and another book was open, which was the book of life. Somebody say, thank God my name's in there. And if it ain't in there, you better see me after this service. We're going to get your name written in that book. Your name has got to be in that book. If your name is not in that book, you're going to the wrong place. And then it says, And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And the death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged. They were judged. Somebody say, here comes a judge. Of course, we're under grace right now. But I'm telling you, we got, he's got the final say. I want you to notice this. How much time do I have? Oh, I better hurry up. I, I, I got to read this. Acts 1, 6 through 8. Let's just let your heart, don't let your heart be troubled or fearful about what's happening on the earth today. By the way, we're not having a nuclear uh, holocaust happening. Okay, aren't you glad for that? That God worked something out so that there isn't a nuclear thing going on. Okay, Acts 1, 6 through 8. And I'll be closing shortly. And they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now they're asking a political question. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority. So no matter what's going on around you, just know the Father has got the final say and the authority and He has set a date. But what's our job then? Pastor Tom, Pastor Tom, what, is this the time where this is going to happen? No, he goes, but verse number 8, it says, But... You will receive power. I like it in the, in the Message Bible. It says, timing is in the Father's business. But what you get is the Holy Spirit. That's what you get. And it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. In all Judea and Samaria. And to the ends of the earth. Bottom line, friends. We may not have all the answers. But there are some absolutes that you can know. God is final authority. Jesus is coming back. And every person, I don't care what political party you're with. I don't care what the color of your skin is. I don't care what your age is. Everybody, young and old, is going to stand before that throne. If I were you, I would bow my knee now. Because if, you, if you're made to bow it later, that's a problem. We have a, no, you have a problem. We don't want you to have a problem. Jesus doesn't want you to have a problem. Come on, let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've given us. Help us, Father, to remember what the blood does, what the blood of Jesus has done. And help us, Father, to convey with accuracy and with an anointing to generations to follow these truths, these revelations about the Word of God and the Kingdom of God and our covenant. And Lord, as Americans, we lift up our country. We lift up our countrymen. We, we pray, Father, that God's grace indeed would be shed upon America and that You would forgive us our sins. We lift up our leaders and we pray for wisdom. And in some cases, we pray for maturity to come upon them. And we thank you, Father, that you are in control. And we're saying, get yourself glory out of our cities, our counties, our nations. In Jesus' mighty name. Can you say amen? amen. Can you give God a shout? Amen.
Amen.